You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, as we return to God's holy and powerful word here this morning, we're turning back to the book of Genesis, and we're turning to chapter 4 here this morning. If you don't have a Bible uh, in your hands, we would love for you to have one. Um, And so just slide your hand up. The ushers would bring a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want to give that to you as a gift, that you have God's holy word as he speaks to you, as he only does through his scriptures. And so we're turning this morning to chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. In fact, that's all the the chapter 4 that we're going to be going through here today. And I've entitled this sermon, The Apple Falls Even Further. Now, for the sake of remembering what we've witnessed so far in the first three chapters of Genesis, as the book of Genesis began with the words, in the beginning God, we need to be reminded that the book you hold in your hands, the Bible, and very specifically, the very first book of the Bible, is a book about God's good, benevolent revelation of himself to mankind It's foundationally a book about him and about what he has created. And then in that, it's also a book about who we are in light of who God is. The book of Genesis is about beginnings. It's about our beginnings in him. It's about our foundations in him. And within this magnificent creation, his great cosmic temple, the entire universe that he spoke forth in only six days. Genesis chapter 1 gave us a front row seat as God formed and filled his whole universe. How in the darkness he created light and how within the nothingness he formed everything. As he spoke the water and the sky and land and oceans and sun and moon and stars into existence. And then how by the power of his word, he then filled the earth with all of the creatures of the oceans, creatures of the air, creatures of the land, and then he created all the vegetation according to their kinds. And then how he topped it all off with his climactic focus of creating us, creating humanity in his image and in his likeness, male and female, he created them And he created us to take dominion of the earth, to multiply across the earth and fill it. But most importantly, he created us to reflect his image and his likeness in the universe. In chapter 2, we zoomed back into that intimate process of, of God's creation of mankind as he created Adam and Eve, right? He created Adam, he formed him from the dust, and he created Eve from the rib of Adam, And then he breathed life into them. And then God, through that, also instituted the very first holy marriage. And then he placed this couple, this holy covenant uh, couple, into the garden to work and to keep and to obey him and to live in perfect, innocent harmony with God forever and ever. Friends, it it was paradise on earth. It was literally heaven on earth They had all that they could ever need. They had more than they could ever want. And even more profoundly, they had the very personal presence of God with them. But then as God gave them one command to follow, one law to keep, right, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was through the whispers of a tempting serpent targeted directly 
at the willing heart and questioning heart that they ultimately ate of the fruit in direct violation of God's word and his very character and his goodness and temptation became sin, gave birth to sin, and they were immediately thrust into the throes of shame and guilt and blame-shifting and pending death. Sin has come into the world. But then through the Lord's pursuit and his rightful justice, the curse of pain in childbearing was doled out for Eve. The pain of toil, of thorns and thistles was doled out for Adam. The curse of marital strife between them was now at hand. She would not readily follow, and he would harshly uh, lead her, dominate her. And then they had the final blow, where we just left off a few weeks ago, when they were ejected from the garden, away from paradise, away from the tree of life, and away from the very personal holy presence of the Lord himself, now to live their lives east of Eden. The last time we were together, the last two verses said this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So that's where we are. It was, it was all so short-lived, friends. We didn't last long in the garden, did we? We failed hard and fast. And so the question here this morning, as we now turn to chapter 4 and on, is did they learn their lesson? Did we learn our lesson? Right? How far does the apple fall from the tree when it came to the next generation of humanity? When it came to Cain and Abel, what are we going to learn here this morning? And how about when it comes to us? How far does the apple fall from the tree? And so the first thing we're going to see this morning in chapter 4 is we're going to start with hopeful potential. But before that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you that on this beautiful, hot summer day that we have before us, blue skies, mountains in view, that you have brought us together to worship you. As we can glory in what you have created, as we ponder the universe and what you began, we also just relish in this morning that we can come before you as your people, as your saints, those you have called out of darkness and into your light to come and to praise your name, to worship your name, that you are a God who offers repentance and faith and you offer salvation and forgiveness of sins when we have so sinned against you. As we look back to our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, we see ourselves as we then also look to Cain and Abel. It is a mirror that reflects upon the struggle and the problem of humanity. And so we pray this morning that we would come repentant, we would come confessing, we would come to learn. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work with your word as he always works with his word, that you would renew our minds, that you would teach us and, and lead us according to your ways. And as, as we look at your word, we would be conformed even further into the image of your son. We pray this in his holy name, amen. And so we start with the four, first four verses of chapter four here. And it says this, now as Adam, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And so we're going to stop right there. So what we see here in this first four verses is such hopeful potential. After all that Adam and Eve just went through, after the fallout of their sin and their ejection from the garden, as we read in these first four verses here in chapter four, things are looking up. It seems as though they're in their second chance here, that this is all being approached with the right heart now and the right actions. You know, the first thing we see here is that their marriage is still intact. Their marriage is still functioning, even amidst all of the shame. As the text clearly says that Adam knew his wife, this, this means that they were faithfully practicing their intimacy with one another, their, their sexual relation together for the procreation of children. They're, they're operating within this one flesh covenant. It's still intact. And that they were, in fact, conceiving and giving birth to children. That even in light of Eve's curse of pain and in childbearing, what we see here is that there is faith, right? Eve is willing to forego the pain of childbirth in order to continue in her divinely designed role as who? As the mother of all living, as Adam named her, right? In chapter 3, verse 20. We also see faith being played out here in the very words that Eve expresses as she says, After she gives birth to Cain, she says this. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This was the very first child born into the world. It was a miracle of miracles. And this was only something that God could have brought forth. This was the first conception, the first pregnancy. This is the first birth ever. And as Eve looked to see what she had, she says, I have gotten a man. Right? As much as she would have been overjoyed at the birth of her child, as any mother would, what stood out to her in that moment was the fact that it was a baby, but it was another man. It was another Adam. Right? As she would have clearly remembered God's promise to send a serpent crusher, right from back in Genesis 3.15, right? as God promised to send a man, Right, Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right, The first gospel, as she faithfully looks to her own child, she's questioning, would this be the man that God promised? Would this be the one that has come to crush the head of Satan? Would this be the one that has come to save us from our sins? And so what we see here is faith. Faith is being played out here. Faith in God's promise. Faith in the gospel. So things are looking up. They are believing and anticipating God's answer to their greatest problem, the problem of sin. And then again in verse 2, as we see a second birth, it says, and again she bore his brother Abel. We see again that this couple is living their life obediently according to God's command and his word. They were previously commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. This comes way back from chapter 1, verse 28. We see them doing just that here. They're having more children, and they're going to go on to have many children. Right? To love God is to obey God. We see them doing that. 
We also see their obedience as we witness what their children are growing up to become. So the first thing we see here is that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Abel was a shepherd. Right? This reveals that he's taking dominion over the animals just as God commanded his parents. We also see with Cain that he was a, a worker of the ground. Right? He's a farmer. He's taking dominion over the earth. He's battling the thorns and the thistles. He's working the ground from where his father Adam was formed. Just as God commanded his father. This is faith and obedience to God being multiplied to the next generation. And friends, this is worship on display. What we're seeing here is both orthodoxy, right? What they are proclaiming, and orthopraxy, what they are doing. In fact, as you look at the whole context of uh, chapter 4, what we see here is a context of worship going on. In fact, it's a worship sandwich, if you could say it that way. Chapter 4 begins with worship, and it ends with worship. Verse 3 says in Genesis 4, 3 to 4, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. What we see is worship going on here. As these two men worked and kept and strived against sickness and disease and thorns and weeds, to succeed in taking dominion over the earth, they are both stopping here to remember, they're stopping to honor, they're stopping to intentionally worship the Lord. And what we see here is that each man, respectively, is bringing offering to the Lord according to their own labor. So we see Cain here bringing an offering of the fruit of the ground, and we see Abel bringing the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So both offerings are products of their hard, faithful efforts. And so again, what we see here is faith, obedience, worship being seen in the very fruit of Adam and Eve's offspring. So the very first parents were doing their job. They were passing down to the next generation what God instructed them to do. They were passing down their faith, and they were pointing their sons to the one to whom they owe all of their worship. In fact, when you think about it, after Adam and Eve's tragic experience in the garden, after they screwed up so bad and lost so much, losing the garden, losing their very intimate face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord, how adamant do you think that they would be to train their children in the right way? How intentional do you think that they would be to show them the right way? Like for you parents out there, you know that a big part of parenting is not only teaching your kids what to do, it's also teaching them what not to do. A big part of parenting is looking back upon your own experience, your own failures, your own sin, and saying to your children, don't do it like I did it. Right? Learn from us. Learn from my mistakes. We've experienced it so that you don't have to. So they would probably have warned them over and over and over again, don't listen to serpents they would have taught them why they are now wearing clothes and garments of skins. 
They would have taught them why there are now weeds and there are thorns and thistles and pain in childbirth, why there is now strife even in life and relationship, why all of a sudden the world is now hard, why there is sickness, why there is disease and death, that it was all because they traded the very word of God for the lies of a serpent, that they questioned God's goodness and they wanted more that they sinfully rebelled to go their own way, that they fell short of the glory of God and they committed such a tragic cosmic treason against his holy name and his character, they would have taught this clearly to their children because their repercussions would have still been so raw and so present. And so what we see here is that things are looking up. Faith, obedience, worship, such a hopeful potential. To the point that God looks down and he regards an offering of worship as worthy. The text says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So as Abel brought his firstborn of his flock, as he would have brought a little firstborn lamb before the Lord, as he would have sacrificed it before God and bringing the fat portions before him, as the Lord looked to the sacrificial offering... And also into the heart of Abel himself, the Lord was pleased. As the text says, he had regard for Abel and his offering. This is acceptable worship going on here. This is really good stuff. This is pleasing the Lord. Things are looking up. It seems that the lesson has been learned. Real change is happening. And humanity is on the right track until... As we read on, as much as the Lord had regard for Abel in verse 4, by verse 5, reality hits. Something is wrong. It's not going as well as we may think. As verse 5 says, but for Cain and his offering, he, the Lord, had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And so we have two sons. We have two different offerings. We have one son and his offering that is acceptable to the Lord. And we have one son and his offering which is not acceptable to the Lord. Now much ink has been spilled as to why Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's isn't. Some think it's because blood offering is superior compared to maybe a grain offering, which I think may have some good merit for sure, especially if you connect this to God redressing Adam and Eve after they covered themselves up with leaves. He took the skins of an animal and he covered them so blood would have been spilt. I can see that connection for sure, right, as God covered up their shame and brought a substitute. So that makes sense that this would be a rehearsal of that in the act of Abel for sure. But I think here more than that, what we see going on here more than anything is that God is God. God determines which sacrifice is acceptable. And that more than that, even the actual act of worship itself is revealing something. That God looks past the outward and he looks inward. He sees the heart that is behind the offering. He sees the authenticity or the lack of authenticity. That he's not persuaded by mere outward show that 
You know, that's why when Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he carefully recorded that it wasn't just about the offering that God had regard for, that it was also about the man. Look back at the text. It says, he had regard for Abel and his offering. There's a both and going on here. The sacrifice of the offering is proven in the sacrifice of the heart. He had regard for Abel and his offering. This should remind us of 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If Abel's heart was not authentically involved in the true worship through this sacrifice, it wouldn't have mattered if he would have brought a thousand baby lambs. As David says in Psalm 51, 16 to 17, speaking about God, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so as Abel's heart and faith are correctly connected to his worship, his offering is therefore accepted. In fact, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.4 says this about Abel. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So there's faith behind the sacrifice. Therefore, the ultimate reason that Cain's worship is not accepted is because he himself is not accepted. As the text says in verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Right? Not just his offering, but Cain himself. In fact, even as you look at how each chose their offering to bring, you can see their faith behind it. For Abel, the text clearly states that it was the firstborn of his flock. This is revealing sacrifice. He's bringing his first. He's, he's bringing his best. But for Cain, the text merely says, it was an offering of the fruit of the ground. The text doesn't say it was his, the first fruits of his crop. It doesn't say that it was the best fruit of the field. No, it just says it was an offering of the fruit of the ground. Right? This is not his highest. This is not his best. Now, this may not immediately tug at our hearts or our minds in our context, but when you think about the original audience to which this is being written to, the Israelites with Moses in the wilderness, as they are receiving the Levitical laws which are being laid out, they would have immediately latched on to what the problem is here. Cain is not giving of his first fruits. He's not giving of his best. He is not honoring the Lord for who he truly is, which is revealing of his heart. It's revealing that his offering wasn't done in true faith. And so we see a principle of worship going on here that's going to be played out through the rest of Scripture, that true, acceptable worship must be connected to the heart. It must be connected to faith. It doesn't matter what you give. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter what you do, where you serve, what you say. If your heart and faith is not connected, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and it means nothing to him. He has no regard for it. If you're not humbly giving of your whole self, 
Loving the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's not true worship. It will will not be accepted by God as such. And so how does Cain react to God's rejection? And then, with that, what does Cain's reaction reveal about his tragic disposition? And then what does it ultimately reveal about our own tragic disposition? Well, friends, as much as Abel is such a positive example in the text, what we see here in this section is that this whole account here largely focuses on Cain. So the lesson to be learned here is mostly about Cain. In fact, as Abel's name is mentioned seven times between verses 1 to 17, Cain's name is mentioned 14 times. Therefore, it's one of those negative lessons, right? As the Holy Spirit, writing the word of God through Moses, so powerfully, so insightfully, and so distinctly points directly to the problem of humanity, that we are all prone to being like Cain. And so, this is point two, our tragic disposition. Going back to verse five, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. This This phrase, his face fell, just means that he was so angry that he could not hide it. His anger was revealing his true attitude. He was so angry that as you looked at him, it was all over his face. He was so mad to the point that in verse 6, the Lord confronts him. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? and Why is your face fallen? We see God here addressing the problem head on. He wants to work with Cain here in addressing his anger. And so he asks him, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? He's basically saying to him, why are you so angry that it's just pouring out of you? And then with that, the Lord goes on to encourage him to change. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's basically saying to Cain, if you, if you learn from this and you learn to do what's right and you, you, you arrive at a right heart with, with a right offering, I am going to accept it. But then he also warns him, he says, and if you do not do well, like rejection of this counsel he's giving him and him continuing in his anger, what does he say? He says, sin is crouching at the door. In the sense that sin is behind the door. It's ready to pounce. And then God also gives him insight to sin. He says, its desire is contrary to you. Like Cain may think that this temptation to sin is going to help him in his anger. And friends, it is tempting. But the Lord says here that sin is never for us. Sin is always contrary to us, contrary to our good. Therefore, God says to him, but you must rule over it. So brothers and sisters, in in any given situation where we are quickly angered, maybe we're angered by someone else, angered by a sibling, for example, or a friend or a spouse, whoever, it's so tempting to run to anger. And it's so tempting to stay in that anger. And it's so tempting to then do something about it. I mean, just think of your kids or think about when you were a kid. Think about how quickly you you became angry if your brother or sister tattled on you. Think about how jealous you may have got when your sibling won the trophy 
or they got the better report card than you, or they got the attention you wanted. Remember how quickly your face grew hot, your face fell, how quickly your mind turned to yourself and inwards to your, your heart, and you wanted to react. You wanted to get back at them. You wanted to hurt them. How you would so quickly resort to sinning against them in the fury of your anger. What God says here is that as tempting as it is to be angry and react sinfully in your anger and to open that door of your heart to sin, he's saying to you, don't be tempted. Don't open the door. Friends, as tempting as it is, sin is never for you. Sin is never for your good. It's never the right answer to soothe your heart. Its desire, God says, is always contrary to you. Therefore, he says, you must rule over it. Which means you must lock that door. You must turn away from that door of sin. It means that you don't go there. You don't toy with it. You don't peek behind the door. Because the moment you do, and as we see with Cain here, the moment you do, all hell will break loose and sin will have its tragic, evil way. Some of you right now are living lives of mastery over sin. You're walking in the Spirit. You're walking in the Word of God and obedience and faith. And God is producing spiritual fruit in you. We're seeing love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. You're learning the power of the Holy Spirit to help you to kill sin. And that's exactly where the Lord wants you. But some of you have left the door unchecked. In fact, some of you have blown the door wide open. You're welcoming all kinds of sin into your life. You're using sin to try to soothe your hurt, your anger, your pain, and you're retaliating. Maybe you're holding on to bitterness. You're choosing not to love. You're choosing not to forgive. And that sin that was once crouching behind the door has now leapt forth like a prowling lion and it's seeking someone to devour. It's devouring your heart. It's destroying your soul. If that's you, and friends, we're all here at times, the Lord calls out to you as he does to Cain and says, Sin's desire isn't for you. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. You must kill it before it kills you. You must kill it before it's hurting others. That's the first counsel we see to the, the heart of a sinner. Now, how does Cain respond here? Well, notice now there is, there is no response from Cain. There is no heeding. There's no heeding the warning of God here. There's no reception of that counsel. There's no confession. There's no repentance. What we see is that the dark door of sin has been flung wide open and the disaster of evil is bursting forth in deception and rage. Rage. Instead of speaking to God, what do we see happens in verse 8? Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, it says, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. 
the firstborn son, likely deceiving his brother out to the field, and then so satanically and so ruthlessly murdering his little brother. The very first two boys of all history, one so angry at the other that he takes his life. James 1, 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Brings forth death. It's quite interesting to consider the names of Cain and Abel at this point. The name Cain in the Hebrew means spear. And Abel means breath. As a spear is designed to do nothing but kill, breath speaks about the brevity of Abel's life. His life was but a breath. Friends, Abel is the first martyr in the scriptures. He is one that was hated for his own faithfulness to the Lord, and he was murdered because of it by his very own brother. This was the same brother that Eve had so much hope in possibly being that crusher of Satan, the hope of the world. But what she's finding out, what they're finding out, is that he's no better than they are. He's a sinner. He's an apple who has fallen even further than the tree than them. Now as his anger bursts forth into murder, friends, we need not be surprised at the outcome here. Anger and murder are always closely associated in the scriptures together. Just as 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The ultimate outworking of anger is murder, whether that's outwardly or in the heart. James also says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In James chapter 4, verse 1 to 2, it gives us insight into what's going on in the heart here. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. As Cain desired the approval of God, even through his empty offering, he let his anger get away from him. And what he imagined in his heart, he then followed through in reality, and now his brother is dead. 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So now, just like his parents, when they were guilty in their own sin, we, we have to ask the question, what did God do? Did he just come and destroy him immediately, as God had every right to do? Did he bring an even fiercer justice down on Cain than Cain had for Abel? What do we see here? What we see is God pursuing Cain. God is pursuing the murderer. He's pursuing the sinner. 
As he previously cried out to Adam and Eve as they hid from him, as he says, where are you to them? He now cries out to their own son. Where is Abel, your brother? In verse 9. Again, he's giving opportunity for him to fess up, for him to be truthful. But instead of that, just like his parents caught in their sin, he disregards the authority and the mercy of God. He barefaced lies to God himself. And he basically tries to elusively even make a joke of it all. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Friends, this is evil to the core. No remorse, no realization of heart, no reverence or acknowledge for who God is, the God who knows all things. What we're seeing here is a seared conscience. We're seeing a debased mind, as Romans 1.28 would say, that he is full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Friends, if you've ever watched or read about serial killers, how they are just absolutely unremorseful, evil, this is what we're seeing in Cain here before God. To which we then see God confronting even further and more forcefully. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? It's another chance for confession and repentance. And God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He's revealing to him, I know exactly what you did. You can't hide it from me. Friends, God sees it all. You can't hide anything from him. From the highest of heights to the lowest of depths, he sees all. He sees what happens behind closed doors. He sees all the things that you watch, all the things you listen to, all the things you read, all the things you do. He knows your very thoughts. He knows everyone. When he calls out to you, where are you? What have you done? It's not that he needs, to, needs you to inform him. He's calling upon you to confess what he already knows. And as for Cain, what does he do? How does he respond? Well, again, he says nothing. Which means he doesn't respond. He doesn't confess to God. He doesn't come to God and say, forgive me, God, I am a sinner. He doesn't repent to the Lord. No, all we see here is nothing. And therefore, just as God did for his parents before him, justice has to take place. There has to be consequences for his sin. Sin always requires punishment. The ultimate punishment, yes, is hell, but there are also earthly consequences. And so similar to his father, God judges Cain by saying, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. It's going to be even harder for Cain to work the ground and to provide for himself. This is his father's curse doubled. And again, as Adam was expelled from the garden, we also see Cain here being further expelled from the land outside the garden, as God says to him, you shall be a fugitive, right, a criminal, and a wanderer of the earth. And so through just one quick moment of fury and murder, Cain goes from the safety and security of a God-fearing family to now becoming a lost, wandering criminal sent out to wander the earth. 
To which finally, finally he responds to the Lord. Finally he says something. Now is he going to confess how his offering fell short, his heart was not in it? Is he going to finally confess how horrific and vile it was that he killed his own little brother out of hatred? Is he going to confess these things? No. Now what we see here is that Cain finally responds to God when he's receiving punishment, when he's receiving justice. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, there's no remorse here. No remorse for his brother's death. No remorse for sin. Just remorse over his judgment. Friends, um, Cain would be your model narcissist. The very first Even though his hands were still stained with the blood of his brother, it's only when justice is doled out to him that he begins to break. It's only when the consequences fall on him negatively that he has any kind of remorse, not for his brother, but remorse. Poor me. This punishment is too much, God. Friends, this is nothing. Nothing but self-pity. This is not godly Sorrow. This is just worldly sorrow, worldly grief. Whoever finds me will kill me. Death for his brother means absolutely nothing to him. But now that the potential danger in death is coming for himself, it's looming all of a sudden. He starts complaining to God. So friends, as much as there was such hopeful potential with this firstborn son, look at the tragedy here. Look at where he is now. What a waste. What a problematic individual. What a lost, wandering sinner. Aren't you glad you're not like him? Well, that's where we fall short, friends. The problem is is that we're all naturally like Cain. We're all born like Cain. We're all prone to empty religion. We're all prone to unacceptable worship. We're all prone to jealousy and anger and murder of the heart. We're prone to lying, to evading, to dishonoring of God himself. We all fall short of the glory of God. No one is good. No, not one. In Cain, we see our natural selves. Yes, there is such hopeful potential, but there is such a tragic disposition. Friends, I'm no better than Cain. You're no better than Cain. This is our reality together, and this is what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us today and to remind us of every day. And so now, what does God do about it all? How does he then respond again? Well, as we've already witnessed, he doles out justice, consequences now, punishment in eternity for sure. But is that it? Is that all? Is there any hope for the liar, the evader, the disrespectful, the hater, the murderer, the sinner? What does God do? Well, what we see next here, and this is point three, is our only solution. That with the justice... There is also mercy. With the justice, 
there is also grace. As Cain is so selfishly worried about somebody coming to kill him now because of his judgment, God surprisingly answers him with mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is holding back what he deserves. As he says in Genesis 4, 15 to 24, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Instead of sending him out to a sure and quick death, God deems to protect him even in his sin. This is mercy. The Lord puts a mark on Cain, it says here, lest any who found him should attack him. We're not sure what this mark is. There's been much speculation about that. But what we see here is that this mark is just going to be some kind of an evident display that those who would seek to attack him would see this mark and it would keep them from harming him. So it's a mark of protection. Then it says in verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, just as his parents were expelled out of the garden, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod just means to wander. Wherever he went, it was all about wandering. He was cast out of God's presence even further than his parents. The apple has surely fallen even further from the tree. But yet by the mercy of God, he was allowed to continue on in life. No longer was he to be a farmer, but he became a city builder. Even though he was lost and he was wandering in his sin, what we see just in God's grace or God's providence and his oversight, his will, is that God used him to populate and fill the earth. Verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahaluel, and Mahaluel fathered Metheshuel, and Metheshuel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was a forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Verse 23 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is, revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. As verse 17, verses 17 to 24 is but a record of Cain's legacy on the earth, what's the one thing that is missing? You still don't see him confessing and repenting of sin at all. No, all you see is his progress over hundreds of years, having children, building cities, and then his subsequent offspring, who unlike Adam and Eve and Abel, are not given to the worship of the Lord. It says nothing about them worshiping the Lord. What you're seeing here is just a priority of worldly efforts and the propagation of sin. 
We see a multiplication of sin rather than faithfulness to God. Especially as we see the offspring of Cain, we see them giving themselves more and more to sin. We see this highlighted even the most here in uh, the great-great-great-grandson Lamech. We see him taking two wives. This is the first polygamy. This is sin. And we see that he's also involved in murder, just like Cain. So friends, as impressive as the legacy may be in the world's eyes of Cain with his cities and all of his culture and this advancement in technology, if God is not in the center of its purpose, it's absolutely of zero eternal value. This means that we're not to be impressed with the world. We're to be impressed with the Lord. We're not to be impressed with a world that is not impressed with the Lord. And so it's kind of puzzling why the Lord would allow Cain to carry on, but when you think about it, it shouldn't be any more puzzling than how the Lord allows our fallen, darkening civilization to continue on in its depravity. Friends, this is the mercy of God for the world. That God still allows such a sinful world to continue. Sometimes we think that uh, we want God to finish it now. It's so dark, God. It's so bad. It's so sinful. I mean, just look at the first story of the first two sons. One who was murdered, and then the, the murderer was set free. What's the point? Well, the point is worship. We've got one true worshiper who's dead, and we've got the other worshiping himself to his death. We had this hope that was squashed. But then we see God's hand at work. There's a hope of another son. As Eve was the mother of all living, as Adam named her, as the promise was going to be working through her from Genesis 3.15 that there's going to be a promise of an offspring. There's going to be one who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of Satan. What does it say in verse 25 and verse 26? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's about worship. Friends, the Lord will be worshipped. He will be worshipped by his people according to his plan, according to his promise. His plan will never fail. And as the text says, it was at this time that people, like not just two sons, but a people who began to call on the name of the Lord. What we see is such a contrast between Seth's descendants and Cain's. Seth's descendants were now multiplying and filling the earth as well, not for themselves, not for their own fame, but doing it for the name and the fame of the Lord. They're proclaiming who he is. They're also going to be bringing offerings to him with right hearts and exalting his very name into the world around him. Two offspring, 
There's only two offspring in this world. There's the offspring of the serpent, or there's the offspring of Eve, who are the offspring of God. There's one offspring who are hoping in themselves to their death, and there's one offspring who are hoping in God and to life. The true worshiper hopes in the same hope as Eve, that through her would come a son to crush the head of the serpent. And this would be a firstborn son, a firstborn son who is going to come and save the world. And friends, that's exactly what happened 4,000 years after this. As a young virgin woman from ancestry that goes all the way back to Seth and to Adam, as she is found bearing a child, going through the pain of childbearing, to give birth to one firstborn son, the serpent head crusher himself, Jesus Christ, the God-man who would come to save wandering, lying, murdering sinners like you and me. As we are all natural-born kings deserving of hell, we have two paths. One path to follow the serpent to the eternal grave, or the other path to follow Christ to life forever with him. God came down to save those who couldn't save themselves, to grant us godly sorrow for our sin, to give us godly repentance that we just can't even whip up on our own, to gift us with true faith, faith in a person, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the firstborn, And then he puts his Holy Spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways and he places us within Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is the only mediator to God through his blood, as Hebrews 12, 24 says. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As much as Abel's blood cries out about our infinite need, Jesus' blood is the infinite answer. To bring us back once again, right? Not to the land of Nod, not to just outside of Eden, but he brings us all the way back into the eternal garden. He makes all things new so that we can call upon the name of the Lord forever and ever. Friends, we had such hopeful potential but such a tragic disposition. Therefore, God gave us the only solution because the apple has fallen even further than Cain in us. The only solution is hope in Christ Jesus. Repent and believe today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how your word is one great big story of redemption, all pointing to one solution in Jesus Christ as you show us our greatest problem, as you show us our tragic disposition. May it all the more resound in praise, knowing that it is Christ's grace that covers us. It's his blood that saved us, that he died for the sin of murderers and haters like us. And he rose from the grave, justifying us 
to bring us back into the presence of God forever. We do pray that as you, as you taught us today through your word, that this would bring lasting change, that this would give us tools to even be battling sin today, to not open the door of sin, but to master it. And God, we can only do this through the strength of your Holy Spirit, by the power of your gospel. We do pray for you to continue to be at work in us today. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.